and to Estranged. It is Helen on her own today, on my own. Um, I am going to address the Q&A questions that I received on Instagram a few weeks ago. Um, it's going to be me and some co-hosts for a little while. Adrian is working on a very exciting music project, so I am going to take over. So may may or may not work today in this kind of monologue style. I think we've talked about before how weird weird it is uh, recording a podcast into a computer anyway, but recording a podcast into a computer to myself is even weirder. But anyway, uh, we'll give it a go. So um, there are a number of questions that I was asked on Instagram. Uh, Some of them I won't be able to answer because I don't know anything about the film or TV series that I was asked about, but I will give it a go. And obviously um, I can't do like hugely in-depth answers because otherwise I'd go on forever. (laughs) So there are questions about um, Dark, the series, which I've yet to watch, who my and Adrian's, um, although I'll just talk about my uh, favourite directors are and why, the HBO series The Vow, Blade Runner Old and New, um, best countries for movies, so which countries make the best movies, Ghost Story, the utterly amazing 2017 film, uh, Cottage Core in light of Covid, the terrifying new global order that potentially um, is on the horizon, uh, The Third Day, which is also a series I haven't watched. Somebody asked, I wonder who, why am I 44 is still a punk? And the final question is, is the new Batman movie going to be cancelled by the ultra woke? So, um, as I said, Dark the series I can't uh, respond to, but I will watch it. I believe it's on Netflix, that'll give us something to talk about another time. I wanted to start off talking about um, the HBO series The Vow, which, like uh, many people, I binge watched uh, a couple of weeks ago. And then also, the obviously, the other. Uh, documentary series on stars I believe seduced so I thought the vow was the better made documentary but that seduced was the more ethical one and I had a lot of problems with the vow and I think a lot of people did um I think you know one of the main criticisms that came about was the fact that um the vow in a way wasn't came from the perspective of people who are high ups in the um in the organization and so perhaps was quite defensive and painted the uh, nixium cult in a way that was more sympathetic because we wanted you know it was sort of hoped potentially that the the viewers would empathize with those people who had left and why they were sucked into it you know, despite the fact that these were figureheads who were very high up in the organisation. So, it, yeah, it, it sort of, I don't think the word propagandistic is uh, applicable, but it was definitely um, sort of hedged in a certain way. Um, and I don't think that it really, um, as clearly as obviously seduced, painted um, the real cult-like dynamics of... Nixium and how essentially it was a self-help cult established to um, give its leader uh, sexual access to potentially infinite people. It was set up in the same way as an MLM and he had an MLM experience having um, been uh, run an MLM um, 
quote-unquote business in the past. So it really was quite disgusting. But the thing that's quite interesting about Nexium and potentially a lot of cults is, um, and this is, I think, what the, the vow tried to use to paint it in a positive light, was the self-help nature and how that's something positive. <laughs> and this is really um, the Hegelian bad infinite, where um, the bad infinite, so we have a kind of a Hegelian idea, and this is really capitalism is the bad inf infinite. It's an infinite that goes on and on and on. And in order for it to go on and on and on, it has to go in one direction, so a straight line. And the infinite has you know, a beginning somewhere, but we don't know where it is, and an end somewhere, we don't know where it is. And of course, it can't end because the bad infinite revolves around the lost object. And the lost object is a, is a principal cause or a principal feature of the capitalistic mode of desire. So this, it's totally bad infinite, you know, something when you have, you have all these courses that you have to keep doing to, to get the answer, get the answer, get the answer. And all of these, um, they, they run a number of courses. So you, um, uh, you, you are initially hooked because you have a positive experience based on sort of a, a principal idea about how hypnosis works. So, you know, a lot of these, a lot of self-help is based upon um, certain insights about subjectivity or things that can help you in the long term. And I think something they use is something called an EM, uh, where you might have an emotional blockage about something. And all of us do obviously have emotional blockages, quote unquote, <laughs> although I, do, I wouldn't call them necessarily blockages. They are actually, um, this is the idea, you know, a lot of kind of East meets West or West meets fake Eastern uh, philosophy is the idea that the, the ego is a bad thing. Actually, we, we desperately need borders to, in order to be able to navigate the world. In a sense, all there is is illusion. So, um, yeah, this this bad infinite is this um, generating a um, desire um, to, uh, and the desire is is generated for this sensation of um, clearing all of these things that are going to sabotage you in being this sort of um, spiritually awakened being. And of course, you can never get there because, as we've said, you know, the ego is necessary. All there really is on a certain level is illusion. Um, so, you know, as, as, as Lacan says, les non-dupes so the, the non-duped er, you know, there is a certain sense where um, one has to engage in a delusion in terms of interacting intersubjectively in the world. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it doesn't work. And, and for Hegel, uh, the good infinite would be human subjectivity itself, which is the way in which uh, subjectivity, human subjectivity, perpetually revolves around certain elements of desire that um, are created within our sub us as individual subjects early on in life. And we, we perpetually revolve around these and are, you know, are not giving way in terms of our desire and perpetually revolving around these things is how we can get enjoyment. And that's basically Hegel's good infinite. And it's sort of focusing on that rather than the bad infinite is an inherently anti-capitalistic mode. But all of this self-help is extremely capitalistic in a way. Um, the self-help of psychoanalysis is one can uh, reduce one's desire to self-sabotage because um, <laughs> one never really wants to achieve a fantasy because the fantasy is, is an illusion as is, you know large part of what we see in the world so um if we were to attain the fantasy we'd be even more depressed than we actually are we'd be melancholic because we would realize that the fantasy um can't fulfill us 
and we often have to have a fantasy to keep us going in the world, but we don't want to get too close to it and we don't want to achieve it necessarily. Uh, we want to be on the road to achieving it, knowing that it's never going to make us happy. Um, and by knowing that it's never going to make us happy, we can potentially achieve, quote unquote, quote unquote, greater things because we aren't so on an unconscious level driven to fail to reach the, the fantasy. So we might, um, when a fantasy is robbed of its um, miraculous power, we might be able to attain it, but it, knowing that it's not going to change our life whatever it is. Um, but, the, you know, the uh, MLMs, I mean, capitalism is is also the bad inf infinite, and we can talk about it a little bit when we talk about Blade Runner. But MLMs are sort of the bad infinite on steroids, um, just as capitalism comes up, comes up against this um, notion of, you know, climate change and resource um, depletion. Of course, the capitalist fantasies that we can go to different planets and we can keep you know with with green um, ways of generating power we can just keep going keep going keep going we'll find a way MLM is just and this is why it's illegal even though it is virtually the same in a sense as as capitalism is capitalism exaggerated capitalism without certain checks and balances and the capitalist um bad infinite yet really really laid to bear and almost you know again we've said this a number of times the reason why Trump is so distasteful is not necessarily because he is as bad as uh, a lot of people think but rather that he is as bad as we already are so he is um, as disgusting and repellent as the system already was just laid bare in in word perhaps more than deed so MLMs are so shocking to us because it really, you know, exposes the um, nonsense of uh, the bad infinite of capitalism. You know, it's right there laid bare. And obviously, you know, we're in a situation at the moment with the way the tech industry has um, PR'd its way into believing that it shouldn't be regulated in the same way as uh, older technologies and industries have been. So we're kind of coming up against that right now in, an, in a really extreme way. But obviously the bad infinite is revealed in um, the MLM because at some stage you will not have enough um, people to exploit. And so um, this guy, Keith Ranieri, uh, set up his um, Jeunesse course, I believe it was, where the women became slaves and, and then the slaves, the first level slaves, then were the uh, masters of the second level slaves, etc., etc., etc. And if you have each person, each slave having four uh, slaves under them, obviously very quickly you run out of every single woman in the world. It's just, you know, simple maths. <laughs> you know, when you, the square, when you square a number, very quickly it becomes. Um, within the billions after a certain number of levels. So um, he did, Keith did say that, you know, within a couple of years, he wanted to have a, a, a president who, who might be under the control of this, um, this system. And it's interesting as well, because it was all about self-development and um, feminism, I think, was one of the, one of the ways that it was uh, um, marketed as this Jeunesse course was female empowerment. Um, both as you were dominating somebody else and you were being dominated and that 
the controlling and your food and being perpetually ready for any task at any time is somehow empowering. And I think, you know, that does speak to the dialectic of a lot of um, the empowerment um, phenomena under capitalism, female empowerment, etc., etc. You know, unless something is really divorced from the capitalist mode, is it ever really empowerment or is it just a way to get uh, more people to more readily um, sacrifice themselves for the market? Um, but yeah, no, Seduced, I thought, was a much more kind of corny documentary, but perhaps more ethical in that it really did spell out um, the abuse and the woman who, through whose eyes we see the um, drama unfold. I think she's called India Oxenberg. Um, she doesn't deny almost her own part, or she, even though she doesn't get um, any jail time, and I think a lot of maybe the people who were high up in the in the um, organisation fit they would because they did uh, essentially, you know, abuse people below them. Um, you know, it, it's much more in a way honest. Although it, it, it is interesting the way that the um, Obviously, I, I'm not a legal expert in any way, but it seems that a lot of the people who still genuinely believed in the cause, because um, there was a, a level of genuinely believing that this was a, uh, a way of saving the world, um, were those who uh, sort of had to face the legal ramifications and those who disavowed it, you know, maybe didn't, which does have a sort of, um, you know, a very religious feel about that. Um, you know, the, the Spanish Inquisition in some way. But yeah, I mean, I think there is something to the fact that, you know, it's so disgusting to us and that it points to a truth of our own system already um, and something that we, we think is natural and normal, but that perhaps isn't an occasion you have these um, these things that are very repellent and gripping stories that come up in the media and actually they potentially say something about our own system in the first place. Of course, it's important to add that um, the, the capitalistic mode of desiring to attain the lost object goes hand in hand with abuse. And so it's not, it's not at all a coincidence that a self-help cult is one that is also a complete, you know, the most um, insanely complex and like spiderweb-like and intrinsically like imprisoning um, sexual abuse cult at the same time. And the reason why I say this is I, we did an, a podcast episode about this. It's when we did our Instagram live and we talked about uh, athlete A, that the more elite the institution, almost the more likely that um, under the capitalist system that is in, in different epochs, I think, you know, slightly different. I think there's obviously abuse in, in areas where there is um, somebody who is much more powerful than the other. But a lot of abuse requires um, a promise of something. And um, so, yeah, no, it, 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 uh, an elite institution and, um, and abuse goes hand in hand. And I think that there is an excusing often of, um, of certain forms of abuse when uh, one, when there is a cultural belief that the system is um, beneficial in some way or generative or important or something that we can't question. And I think also that this was um, maybe the the correct aspect of Me Too and also where it, um, it, was, it was missing something and that, that Me Too points out, if we read it in like what it points to in terms of the 
the um, exploitative economy that we live in, then this is just a manifestation um, of abuse within one of the most grossly misrun industries. And it's kind of interesting always to call it an industry when it's like that corrupt and you can have somebody like Harvey Weinstein just just have this huge amount of power. And it's because, you know, it, it's, it's an industry of, of fame, of success, of perceived wealth, of, you know, sort of fantasy, in a sense. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I made my point clear enough, but that abuse and the lost objects and the market system go hand in hand. And so the abuse takes a certain form when it came to Harvey Weinstein in and others, and it still goes on in that particular industry. Um, but they are intrinsically bound with one another. Um, and that it can happen not just to women, it happens to many people, but it is an emergent, I don't want to use the word contingent because it sounds flippant, but it's an emergent of that particular system. But because of the nature of um, the fantastical, intense fantastical dimension of that particular um, area, I think it's not surprising that that abuse came about and that people are able to act uh, with such impunity for so long. Um, and it's not just a question of, oh, you know, there's a lot of people who want desperately to be, um, you know, it's people, it's immensely competitive, so people do anything to succeed or that um, it's not really a meritocracy. I mean, I don't think very many things are a meritocracy. Um, and obviously a lot of people have aspirations to ensure that it is a meritocracy, but there's, you know, it's a seriously complicated question. And the delusion of meritocracy when something absolutely isn't can be really traumatic as well. Um, but that um, in terms of the wider community, those questions aren't asked. And, you know, the abuse is not just going on in... Um, things like Nixium or, or the film industry or whatever, but, you know, in all, all areas, but there's a certain flavour to it. And it perhaps we think it is less likely when it's in an, in an elite area, but often when it's a question of immense achievement, of nearing the lost object, of um, one should be grateful that one is there. <laughs> and also, you know, something that is uh, unquestionably un... Uh, unoverseen um, it can just by its very nature engender this kind of abuse and again the question is much more universalist than just a question of women being abused by men I think um, abuse can take many forms but that is just an emergent and so maybe when I say this is a trick that maybe me too missed is that within that there is a universalist dimension uh, and that's something that needs to be retained at the same time as pointing out the fact that, yeah, there are a lot of, in that particular question, a lot of actresses or staff or whatever. Um, maybe that's everything I have to say about that. Uh, so let's see what, what next one should we talk about. Um, maybe this, so somebody asked the question, I can't remember the wording. It was something about like, what horrific world, new world order do we, do we have to await us? after after covid and obviously um one can never predict the future um slavoj zizek obviously is well known for saying that uh the there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel 
um, but that light is another train coming towards us. So I, I'm not I'm not very um, optimistic, and I do I do worry um, about a kind of a return to sort of like a neo feudalism. Um, I think UBI um, could be read both as a cope for um, the proliferation of, of the billionaire class and the wanton exploitation of tech and the kind of uh, belief that tech is generating something new when one could actually really question what value is being produced other than just speeding everything up and speeding everything up obviously means that fewer people are involved in the in the production so less um, value quote-unquote is generated because it's a sacrifice um, but UBI obviously one could say is a good thing because you know it gives people more free time and uh, more freedom and it's compensating um, the well, I think the proletarian, the notion of a proletarian, we, we kind of, it's interesting looking at, looking at Marx and Engels because they're obviously so ahead of their time almost and a lot of the, what looked like a proletarian then maybe looks different now. Maybe one has an iPod, uh, an iPhone or something, but I think, you know, there's a huge expansion of the, of the proletariat. Um, and, you know, with, with tech, you have fewer workers, fewer managers, fewer, well, maybe more owners, who knows. Um, but yeah, it is, it is worrying that if, if it's, uh, de uh, sort of given out in a certain way, UBI is just a compensation to, to, to continue with the same kind of system that we already have. Um, obviously very basic marks, you know, a capitalist system can't continue if the workers don't have enough money to buy the products. So, you know, is this going to be the company store of the future? Um, and I, I definitely think that if we look at the amount of money that the billionaire classes, you know, I think we are witnessing one of the biggest wealth transfers ever um, under COVID. And um, I think Elon Musk's wealth has gone up by 90 billion or something like that. So, um, and obviously Elon Musk is kind of implicated in this idea of the, the, the post-human world. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit with, with Blade Runner. Um, but yeah, no, it's, I think, I think maybe there's a good way of dealing with it and a bad way of, of dealing with, um, UBI and, and tech and, and where that's all going. I don't, I don't have a prediction for the future really, but that is a fear that I have. And a, a fear that I have as well as the, um, blurring of what's left, maybe left as in politically. I think a lot of what has, what was once left has been divorced of its original meaning and is now being used um, as a PR kind of cudgel for capital. Um, I think there's a dislocation of um, cause and effect with a lot of these terms. Uh, there's a lot of ideas like the abolition of the family and things like that. And um, I think, you know, Marx and Engels talked about different familial um, structures under capitalism. And obviously, um, the the the, uh, the notion of the patriarchal and things like that i think there's sort of a disconnect because marx and engels did make clear that um, a different political economy gene uh, generates different familial structures so just like the ubi question if we just get rid of a certain familial structure are we defeating capital or are we beckoning it in um to different dimensions of our lives to the quote-unquote private. I mean, I think this notion of the private is a problematic one anyway, and um, the ever-receding private is a, uh, a bad infinite of capital, as in this notion of having to keep protecting the private is a, is a 
bad in, as is a notion of the bad infinite. But I think that um, familial structures are a result of the um, political economy. So the breakdown of the family is a, is a result of a changing political economy. And I do think that neoliberalism, obviously wants that to happen, it's pretty clear. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, obviously, you know, we have this in terms of, maybe we can talk about uh, Blade Runner. So there's a question about Blade Runner, the old and new. And I think the idea of sex and sexual difference comes a lot, comes up a lot in um, uh, Blade Runner 2049, obviously sexuality can't really be divorced from subjectivity and you know so the um the Marx and Engels quote so all that is solid melts into air all that is holy is profaned so um you know ca capitalism really does um replace uh you know potentially a lot of the quote-unquote patriarchal ideas that we have are from very early uh, capitalist structures and that uh, from a certain class where we want to protect um, a certain lineage or uh, a certain woman who is excluded from the workplace and that role is protected. We see this, you know, throughout all kinds of civilizations. Obviously, in, in ancient Greece, um, the woman who potentially was the, had a life that feminists today might find abhorrent was the upper-class Athenian woman. And women in different parts of Greece were kind of emancipated in certain ways so I think it, you know it's um it's representative this this kind of cliched notion of, of what like a patriarchal family structure um maybe is misrecognized under under liberalism so actually capitalism does want to break down or, or doesn't want to but there is a there's a, a a breakdown of kind of all kinds of normative um maybe heterosexual or quote-unquote patriarchal um, structures and there was another I think it's in the communist manifesto as well so um, where it said the bourgeoisie whenever it has got the upper hand has put an end to all feudal patriotic patriarchal and idyllic relations so <laughs> I think there is a sort of uh, yeah a, a, a weird um, back to frontism about cause and effect when it comes to um, what are perceived to be radical uh, modes of sexual expression and things like that um, not that I think everything everybody can do but I, I also think there's you know insight in a lot of different um, ways of structuring uh, or ways of being in terms of the sexual but um, I think there is a, a an error in terms of cause and effect and in, in terms of like the political notion of what that is um, so what can we say about Blade Runner uh, I think so much we did a whole episode about Blade Runner 2049 maybe about 18 months ago. Um, I haven't seen it recently. I think that one of the things I like about it is um, the difference between the first Blade Runner and the second Blade Runner is that, so Kay is the, is the Brian Gosling main character replicant in the second in 2049. And so um, one of the things I like, obviously this doesn't take us to the very end of the um, action, but that he believes himself um, in the in the film, the main part of the film, to be the sort of hero of a story, that he's a special chosen one. He is the child of, um, the impossible child of a replicant, or Deckard and, and, and Rachel. 
and that he comes to understand through the action that he isn't at all, he's nobody special. This is just, these are just made up illusions. And I do think that's quite, you know, uh, quite interesting in terms of um, within capitalism, we all have to be the, the hero of our own Hollywood tale. The, I, I, I'm not a fan of the hero's journey. Or if you're gonna use the hero's journey, I think it's a, um, a formula that can be undercut with a really radical, um, message and in a way you know this is that that this, this main character isn't isn't special at all that he is just an ordinary replicant and that he was um mechanically deluded into believing that he was this great chosen one obviously he then um just sacrifice himself for the uh the one who he thinks he is um but i think that's kind of quite an interesting uh an interesting flip in the narratival form Obviously, we have, um, you know, so it's a post-human world or a post-natural world. Um, so humans, you know, our, our uh, podcast is called Estranged because by definition, humans are estranged from nature. So I think this is also something that I would have a, a quibble with in terms of like the green movement or um, even uh, lots of kind of... Um, more holistic kind of thing, movements is that humans, but in being humans, are not natural. We are biologically natural, but there is a sort of a, a, a glitch in our biology, and that makes us different from from other beings. So we are not at one with our world. We are split, and that generates our subjectivity. That generates our quote unquote intelligence, whatever that means, and that generates our speech. So we are already alienated. But then, in this world of the future, twenty forty nine, where we are alienated and then we have replaced nature with our science and our um, and our development. Like we are alienated from alienation almost, you know, we are like doubly alienated or nature is alienated from nature. Um, I find, you know, I was just thinking it's quite interesting. I think like early on in the film, there is, it opens with an eye and then it like maybe dissolves to a solar farm, like a circular solar farm. I think it's interesting that we still, we use these terms, these biological terms, almost to like um, delude ourselves into thinking that these are natural, or I guess they, maybe they are natural sciences, natural, who knows, but that's, it's called a plant, you know, plants generate energy in, in terms of photosynthesis in the world, and these industrial plants generate energy as well. Um, I also, yeah, find it interesting. Um, I think this is an, an, another thing um, about the kind of PR magic of, of, of tech or whatever. Things like um, soy lent are, are foodstuffs that are maybe painted as being you know, more ethical or better for the environment or whatever. But actually they're just really there to just save people time. You know, executives, you can't really be bothered to eat anymore. And they take the time to enjoy um, food or enjoy other people's company or waste time eating. And enjoyment is really what is anti-capitalistic, enjoyment versus accumulation. And obviously the food that's, that's in this film is just like utter slop. So I think, you know, it really paints the picture that we're in this completely capitalised world. I also think it's really interesting, maybe we've mentioned it before, the notion of the state and the and capital. Um, maybe in the past, and I think this, this speaks to like the dialectic of, of what's good and what's bad. And um, we've talked about it so much on this podcast about how it's interesting that... Um, within public discourse or within kind of popular discourse about the quote-unquote political so often is used the examples from from um, what's it from harry potter you know 
this person is like Voldemort, this person is like, you know, Hermione, AOC is like Hermione or something. And that, you know, it's a, it's a um, very catching story, but it's a very binary goody versus baddie, um, you know, dark forces versus good. Um, and actually, it's much more ambivalent than that and always has been. And so in, in often in maybe 20th century storytelling, the state can be seen as the baddie. Interesting, James Bond as the state, <laughs> he's seen as the goodie. But often, you know, that we, we have this cliche notion that the state's bad and that there's in rugged individualism is good. Um, and I think we're at a point where that's really, really blurred. And in this post-capitalistic world, um, the capitalists are re really the baddies. Obviously, you know, that the... the the, the state isn't all good at all. And we have these, um, you know, the uh, those who are exploited by the state to do the job of the quote-unquote police are um, robot replicants, fake humans. Um, so, you know, is that bad? Is it, is it worse? Another question, is it worse to exploit a robot or to exploit a human? And is exploiting a robot the same as exploiting a human? Um, it's interesting. It's an interesting question for capital as well. And I think, I mentioned it earlier that in tech, how do you generate value if nobody's exploited? Um, because surplus value is determined by um, a sacrifice of a worker not being given its full worth. And that's that's why value is generated. So um, an example that Marx and Engels use is uh, very intricate lace made by children uh, in Victorian era worn by elegant ladies. The more intricate the um, lace, the tinier the fingers, the more likely the person making the fabric was to go blind. And that human sacrifice generated value. Um, but it, I think there, there again, we see the dialectic of it all that like, well, is it better therefore to, to make um, t-shirts, you know, that, that are, are worth nothing um, well, no, because we just shifted the uh, the um, making to a country where it's acceptable to pay um, lower wages. But it, it's it's a, it's very very complicated, essentially. And I think it's interesting that, like, in terms of the the story structure, the goodies, the state, and the baddies of the capitalists. And you know, within our our current situation, um, we do have a situation where um, capital is becoming more powerful than the state, and so certain. Um, limits on uh, capital cannot be ex executed and where within our public understanding potentially now less but let's say over the last 10 years um, we have bought into a fantasy of um, tech wonderfulness um, I think an example of where the, the state is less powerful than capital is in Ireland where um, Apple won't pay the tax that is owed and the government doesn't want to enforce it, but the EU does want that to be enforced. Um, so, where were we? <laughs> that was a long tangent. Um, but yeah, the point being that the uh, it's it's complicated, you know, it's not one way or the other. Um, and I think, again, this is, you know, the ambivalent question of, of sexuality and, and, again, this idea of human alienation and that sex is not natural it is an example of our lack of being natural it is our alienation as such and it is so taboo and so traumatic because it is the, it is the point at which 
the, un the rupture is exposed. The rupture papered over by fantasy, so we can enjoy sex with fantasy, but it is just that it is just a pure rupture as such. And I think, you know, again, this is why psychoanalysis would be on the side of trans, because, you know, the, the, the question of gender, la femme n'existe pas, you know, it, the woman doesn't exist, or woman as such doesn't exist. Um, there's a truth in the sort of plurality of position or nonness of, of being. Again, there is also a question of like, well, is there anything other than the illusion in the first place? <laughs> No, and we just replace them with a plethora of illusions, which is fine. Um, nothing's better than the other, but it's just it's just as inter interesting ambivalence. But the, you know, it's interesting. So the the fact that both Blade Runners play with the idea of subjectivity, capital, and sex, and they're really really intertwined. Um, again, you know, this is something that I'm sure many of you have read Todd McGowan, but is a, a point in Capitalism and Desire that the right often would would um, explain capitalism to be a natural phenomenon when actually it's not natural at all it is um, an outgrowth of our unnatural subjectivity and our subjectivity being generated by the fact that we were torn from the breast of our mothers born too early born as a fetus uh, becoming a person intertwined with another and then ripped away um, and that leaves us with this fantasy that there is a lost object that will return us to that experience of being one. That experience of being one, only being death after the point of being separated from the breast. So, um, but yeah, so the, the question of who is a replicant, who is not, you know, that, that really does touch on subjectivity. In a sense, you know, we identify with the replicants as well. They're very, they look like humans. They are, Carl Harrison Ford was the great star of his day and obviously Ryan Gosling too. Um, we, we identify, so maybe there is part of us that identifies with that experience of being a replicant. Of course, um, again, in psychoanalysis, that would be this idea that um, nature is nurture. So as a human, our personality isn't really natural. It's about the experience of our natural emer unnatural emergence into the world. So in a sense, we are already at replicants. Um, so yeah, the, the second one, 2049, deals with the question of um, sexual relationship in lots of different ways obviously um k is having a sort of relationship with a with a projection although he can have sex with the projection when it is um intertwined with a, a woman a prostitute who plays her <laughs> so yeah but this is sort of already a duality there and this kind of woman more than woman in a way um but often in a but you know the the question of this replicant or this special figure who isn't K in the end is this replicant non-replicant relationship and the question of well well there's a strict class binary within this world of, of Blade Runner of the replicant and the non-replicant and where does it put the ethics of exploiting the replicants if um, one is bred with another yeah it's an interesting question because obviously in our world at the moment you know we exploit other people um and the um it's all of that that exploitation is disavowed with with you know commodity fetishism under our system um but yeah there's this question of where does one become that who can be exploited and where does one become a human obviously that the, the world for a human being isn't a nice place to live anyway in that world um but it's interesting because 
I'm not really sure what I think about this, but the, the girl who is re revealed to be th this offspring is a woman who lives in this kind of sterile world who creates um, fake memories for replicants as her job. She's employed to do it. Um, but almost she doesn't have a sex in the end. She's, she's non-sexed. She, um, she's a sort of like asexual, innocent being who then is partnered off with her father at the end of the story. Um, in a way, often when you have this film isn't necessarily a love story, but you know, a, a partnering off, a closing off, obviously love and relationships are so important to, to human existence. So often in a film, um, an individual will be tied off with another individual, often of the opposite sex. But it's interesting, yeah, that it ends with this kind of like chaste um, binary of mother, father and daughter, um, which I don't know is interesting that they kind of leave that question of can a, can a replicant and a human um, create a human or a being that can be considered human and is the question of subject uh, of um, the experience of lacking sex what makes us human and therefore are, is the answer no she isn't human obviously we do have people who identify as asexual um, but so there's not to say an asexual isn't a human but you know the fact that it has to be labeled as asexual you know there's a something that is nothing so and you know obviously it isn't discussed within the diegesis of the film but she's obviously just not not um on that kind of level or maybe she is and we're just not showing it but i just think in that symbolic um ending where they're tied off father daughter um to be quite interesting anyway moving on so uh best countries for films um my opinion usa USSR, so Soviet Russia, um, France and Spain. I say France and Spain because I got into um, filmmaking through watching French and Spanish films and endlessly. I enjoyed language learning and I was a very lazy teenager and I discovered that a way to learn languages was to watch endless movies. In those days it was a singular VHS, something like Hamon Hamon by B. Luna that I maybe watched thousands of times, but um, obviously now with Netflix and stuff you can watch anything in any language, which is amazing. But, you know, just the, I just are very familiar with that, with that way of uh, making films as in as a viewer. Um, and I have a real um, place in my heart. They have a real place in my heart. I do think um, American films have the potential often to be the most emancipatory. Um, I kind of believe that um, the Hollywood form, because it takes us to this point of... Um, accessing our desire quote unquote because it does that it also has the greatest potential to undercut that fantasy um and i think that we see we have seen the greatest independent films uh certainly in the last decade from america i also think that um europe has sold out to um corporate socialism when it comes to the way that films are funded and organizations that were set up to protect uh, European cinema, art house cinema, indigenous cinema have actually um, become more focused in uh, trade and bringing corporate media corporations to Europe to make stuff for quote unquote cheaper, but I don't know how much cheaper it is anymore. But America, um, I don't know whether free market capitalism is better than um, corporate socialism, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of um, really amazing independent films being made. Um, USSR, I don't know why, 
but there were, um, I don't know if allegory had to be used more or something like that, certainly like the latter part of the USSR, um, even early um, uh, Soviet films, just unusual, surreal. I don't know whether there is a surreality to a world where everything is so controlled, and so one has to find the poetic and the weird, um, or whether one's experience is so different to a world where we, like our perceived free world. Again, talking about this idea of um, human subjectivity is unnatural, like, and nature is nurture. Um, obviously, Marx talks about this so much in terms of the political economy and how it creates um, the kind of superstructure of society. And I think this this term, I think it might be like that guy that created Breitbart is a term on the right where they say politics is downstream from culture. I think it's absolutely bollocks. I think it's very much the other way around. Of course, it's a kind of a chicken and egg thing, but um, I think there's a real misrecognition on the left and the right in terms of identity politics where they... I'm loath to use the terms left and right anymore. I just think there's different ways of defending capital through identity politics. Um, and they become so divorced from the political, because to me, the political is about managing the contradiction, confronting the contradiction that exists in whatever way that we structure society and managing it in the way that we think is, is most appropriate. And that capitalism is denying the contradiction through um, commodity fetishism and that identity politics is just a way to um, culturally justify whatever unfairnesses that exist within the capitalist system in a, in a way that your ideology sees fit. So I'm, I'm very against identity politics. But um, yeah, so the, the fact being, though, that you know, in a Marxist sense, one's subjectivity is generated by one's material experience. So to what extent is that sort of like sideways contemplative surreality a feature of um, being part of the Soviet world. Yeah and uh, just to go back to that notion of the um, state corporation what often happens is that which is made outside of that mode is just something that supports or justifies that same ideology or doesn't question that ideology in any way and that questioning can be uncomfortable but I think a way in which that questioning can be less uncomfortable is by using the um, very um, compelling structures of traditional, maybe mainstream um, cinema narrative that really draws us in on the level of desire, gets us to the point to really be invested in, in what we're seeing. And film already does that on its very material level. It really draws us in, but... Um, it can have that kind of undercutting possibility. And a lot of stuff that maybe is more wondering, which I often really enjoy, but maybe today, just in terms of the ideological position that is like really prevalent, perhaps, yeah, perhaps that American mode does, does provide um, something good. Um, a film that did come out of um, the American system, made by very mainstream filmmakers, and the, I was asked about on Instagram as a ghost story, which I just think is one of the best films ever made. It's just absolutely beautiful. Made for 100,000, obviously being um, a very mainstream and successful filmmakers, one might have access to kind of um, actors and crew and stuff to make it for that amount of money, but it just shot beautifully, beautiful allegory, and I just think perfect storytelling. Each scene is utterly genius. But this idea of um, 
being tied to place. You know, it really brings theme theme out very visually, um, and very you know gradually and towards the end of the film ties it together in this very meaningful way. Because I think um, often maybe people think that art house film, or you know, latter twentieth century might be about like kind of destroying meta narratives and stuff. Um, which again, I think I think a lot of latter twentieth century philosophy was a bit of a um, detour from what's been good, maybe, just um, in the fact that one was confronted with this ginormous expansion of capital, so maybe one was distracted, let's say, and uh, the um, the ways in which capital was expanded was very clever, and one wasn't confronted with the dark side of that until post-crash, so I think maybe there was an era where uh, more radical stuff wasn't that radical, actually, at all. Um, but... I do think it is very necessary within the film medium to to um, to come to some kind of conclusion or to to create. It doesn't have to. It can be tangential, but to create some kind of whole. Um, and I think, really, like a lot of the destruction of meta narrative, like post truth and everything, <laughs> this world that we're you know in the moment, there is a truth, and the truth is contradiction, and that can still be like a satisfying. Um, whole truth but it's the truth of negativity i've heard some people on the kind of the post left left criticize the idea of universalism as if it's another silly benetton kind of trying to tie everything up and paper over the contradiction of capital with another sort of like cheesy little um it's all right now because we've got everybody represented but i actually think that universalism is nothing of the sort universalism is only a whole in its non-wholeness it only can work by definition, um, including the non in the whole. So that what everybody shares is what they don't have and what they don't have, as in they have a lack, but it is the thing they don't have is colon lack. So, you know, um, I think lack can be, and lack is required um, to have a kind of narrative and that lack can either be exposed or papered over. And I think that ghost story does an amazing job of animating the narrative into a nice, satisfying whole, but doing so by bringing out the kind of lack. You know, being a ghost is, is a non-living, living thing. You know, it's a, it's a lacking, it's a thing that isn't, isn't at the same time, which is, of course, very clever. But the... Um, it makes me think of, you know, this kind of this ghost that's tied to this place. So before, you know, the story has even started, he has this tie to this place, this Midwestern craftsman falling down cottage. Um, and it reminds me of the story of the man picking up the rock, Levi Strauss story. <laughs> that, um, one, at first, it's how human subjectivity or the, the bad infinite works is, one um, tries to pick up a rock and it's too heavy. So you pick up, a, try to pick up another rock and it's too heavy. And by dint of doing so, you become so used to the heaviness of the rock that you um, keep wanting to pick up the same rock. And I think that's the story of human life. Uh, and I think that's um, just the way it is. You know, we can we can come to recognise that we want to pick up the heavy rock or we cannot. Um, so let me see what else we have. We have a question about the series The Third Day, which I can't answer. We've answered the question of the new global order. Okay, cottagecore. Somebody asked a question about cottagecore in the time of COVID. Obviously, it's a very traumatising time. I think there's uh, a 
yeah, a, a desire to kind of be all warm and cosy, of course, and there's nothing wrong with needing a crutch at, at some stage. I think that though the cottage call maybe was something that came to the fore on social media, or whatever, during COVID, because we have more time to, to maybe like construct a, a cosy situation for ourselves if we're at home. Um, but I think it's existed um, a lot and it is a sort of um, way that we um, maybe comfort ourselves in a rapaciously capitalistic and alienated world. And, you know, the last 10 years, I think, in the UK, hygge, which is like a Danish term for cosiness, has been a big thing. And um, it will be interesting, though, that to see whether people are leaving um, the cities for good and staying in the countryside. I don't think that... I think the world is so globalised now that one doesn't escape, obviously, COVID in the um, countryside. It's also interesting how, you know, I think part of the point of COVID, and there's been a lot of these questions of COVID deniers and everything like that, but I think that the, the real question is, we don't really know anything. And so a lot of things that potentially seemed like um, strange enough to generate conspiracy theories about COVID not existing was just a question of the fact that we don't know anything. And it's profoundly traumatising to the human subject to be in a world where we don't know and um, we've never been we've never been confronted we've been confronted with similar things but nothing like this um so yeah I mean I think that's where I think also uh, conspiracy theories emerge out of a non-knowing big other non-existent big other and you know the the, <laughs> the useless state uh, one can't tolerate the lacunae that exist within the imperfect system run by imperfect humans um one could obviously challenge when it's you know corrupt or um it is within our hands to be better but a lot of the time it is completely without our hands um so yeah you know we have the i think the, the cottage core is maybe the less toxic conspiracy theory of <laughs> uh, the same sort of comforting mode but you know the Harajuku in Japan and this, you know it's a similar thing this fairy tale childish um kind of comforting world is maybe something we need right now and there's also nothing wrong with being um cottage cozy or whatever um so question about the ghost story we've done country best countries for films we've done uh favorite directors and why um those whose work I'm most familiar with would be Claire Denis and Pedro Almodovar. Those were two filmmakers whose work I watched endlessly growing up, but that was just because they were in Spanish and French, French and Spanish respectively. So, you know, actually you do learn a lot from films just by watching them. Um, I think that there are so many. I think that there are many who are completely unrecognised whose work is excellent and who we will never know just by the nature of the way that the industry is structured it doesn't do a very you know like all capitalistic forms there's a huge amount of waste and there's not a good way of distributing or getting people to view work or have work be seen which is really tragic and there's a huge I cannot actually it's almost too upsetting to, to like um articulate how much waste there is and how useless um, the distribution, you know, the likelihood of the film getting distribution is like a, a percentage or something. Um, we have the facility for people to watch anything. Um, there is also this, um, again, we've talked about the, the term privacy and how important it is for capitalism, exclusivity. 
um, that things have to be password protected or if you want to qualify for a festival or something you have to have it all silenced off for like two years by which time the moment might have passed so, and there's so much beautiful work out there that you do see in in various places that one has to know where to look and obviously because film is so expensive to make it requires capital so there's there is a weird way in which it's so expensive and therefore because it's expensive by definition the result is that so much work is wasted and so little is seen but uh yeah they, those filmmakers i absolutely love uh, joanna hogg i absolutely love british filmmaker uh very interesting way of making films and i don't know if anybody i'm guessing a lot of people have seen um her most recent film um well there's another one coming out next year so very excited about that um denny villeneuve though would be my most favorite contemporary filmmaker or um mainstream filmmaker i think his work is um he has a real precision to it which i really admire but um he uses the conventional form the hollywood form to really to that effect of um being so compelling and yet having an, a really ethical core and almost a radical message um so i think he's fantastic i think there is a lot of um cliched work that has a visual aesthetic that's very um, interesting, although it becomes very tired very quickly, but that doesn't have a real narratival core to it, which I think is actually the most difficult thing uh, to engineer. I think that the aesthetic, um, when I talk about the, you know, certain looks, it might be um, less impressive than something that is actually overall an entire machine that moves towards this point of fantasy. I think there's a lot of identity politics in filmmaking, as there is obviously in everything, which turns the film from emancipatory to capitalist propaganda. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think we're at an interesting time, but I think there's still a lot of amazing stuff being made. But unfortunately, um, a lot of excellent stuff is just never seen. Um, so I am thinking about... <laughs> ways in which one might go about improving that but who knows if that's actually possible uh, under the capitalist system i wonder if there are any it's interesting as well talking about ca uh, contemporary film under capitalism one sees a lot of trends um in, in film and music video making as well music video a lot of like aesthetic uh, and experimental films sort of the visual I visual imagery first gets played out and then you see sort of in in music really the same tropes coming up, the same textures, the same um, camera movements, the same colours, the same sort of um, things on screen. Um, and then in film, you see kind of, it's almost like that stuff matters, but I think it matters in service to a, a greater, um, a greater motivation other than just the look. Um, and I think that's for a different medium other than film. Um, a fashion film, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very commercial thing um but i think also there are these um one sees the same things for a long time there was um the f the feminist horror it was almost like every film made by a woman nearly i mean a large percentage because obviously still well i don't know obviously things have changed a lot um but to make an actual standalone film uh, for a person of any kind is really difficult but one saw um, a huge number of feminist horror films over the last four years, 
and it, I don't know if it's like, oh, if you're a woman, then you have to make this kind of film. Well, like, I really hope not. Um, or obviously there's a, this notion that horror sells and um, then these questions of um, gender are important under our current mode of production. So maybe that's why. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to suddenly, suddenly pick up on these kinds of films and almost like by the time the first one has been made, maybe the insight has been had, <laughs> but still one can maybe exploit that insight for years to come. Um, I mean, I don't think I want to do it, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. But that's not to say that, you know, I, 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 the, the critique I would have is that this idea that maybe a woman is allowed to make a film if it's, you know, a horror film, um, rather than like all women make that. I don't think that's the case at all. I think women are complex and extremely different and unique in um, very many ways. Uh, so a couple more questions. Why am I 44 and still a punk? Uh, well, this is a question from Jay Baker. I think punks are great. Punk is about um, the contradiction as such, so I don't think there's a problem with it at all. Um, although maybe it's functioning in the same way as cottage crawl. It's the anti-cottage crawl, the um, reliving of youthful things to reassure yourself that death is not on its way as it is for everybody. But no, I think I think punk is excusable. I think uh, uh, where, where I am at the moment, Northern Ireland had a, a great punk tradition during the Troubles. And I think punk is the anti destruction of meta-narrative. It, so punk is creating something out of um, the contradiction itself and kind of howling into that, that contradiction. Whereas a lot of just um, blurring of lines or just destruction of meta-narratives is just anarchistic and I don't think very generative. And actually anything that isn't, um, that is just uh, maybe not creative in and of itself can just be capitalised on. As in as something that just blurs the boundaries. Capitalism loves erosion of boundaries. It loves um, the creation of new boundaries, fake boundaries, and the erosion of old ones. So I think a lot of radical movements aren't radical at all when you see it in the light of how capitalism functions. Um, I will leave my favourite question to the, to the last. Is the new Batman movie going to be cancelled by the actual woke? So... <laughs> The ultra rogue, uh, a religion with no redemption. So is it a religion at all? I don't know. I think it is the PR wing of capital. Um, so I think that ultra woke purity politics on one side has an analogous partner in right wing identity politics. I think it's the same thing. And I think it's a feature of um, when capitalism as it is at its most strident um, is at its least equal and at its most destabilizing. Because this is the thing, I mean, capitalism, this is, I think there's a real mistake in likening, in saying that quote unquote patriarchy is the thing. Um, I think it's easy to think it's a thing and maybe satisfying. Um, but I think we're already seeing that it isn't, just because things are becoming more and more equal and less and less equal at the same time. So um, obviously during. The, the so the first war, war of liberalism world war two um the end of one era world war one sort of an imperial era moving towards a liberal era um after 1919 um globalist politics blah blah, blah. <laughs> we have you know the 14 points of world war uh treaty of versailles imposing on germany was sort of destroyed after world war one the war guilt clause, America bailing them out with loans, America 
uh, generating huge amounts of wealth. Prior to the Wall Street crash, it all collapsing. Um, the ephemera of nothing, <laughs> then pulling the loans out of Germany, then German, I mean, obviously before they have like hyperinflation, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then Germany suffering, you know, well, who started World War One? In some sense, it was Germany, huge amounts of destruction reparations, taking away, uh, all of these things that were involved in the 14 points, including that um, industrial Western part. Uh, then hyperinflation, then bailed out by loans that very quickly faltered. So you have this extreme, I mean, you have the dark side of liberalism right there very early on and this kind of proliferation in the late 20s after loans um, had kicked in, this very kind of um, bohemian, uh, artist, artistic expression in Germany, which was obviously a very exciting time to be there. And then that being the rug being torn again when um, the Wall Street crash happened and then after devastation. So, you know, the point being that that extreme of that form of identity politics in uh, Nazism, I think identity politics is a right-wing phenomenon. And I think culturally we think it can be left-wing, but I think that's a right-wing deviation for that. Um, yeah, so we can see that as the example, and we obviously see that post-2008, without <laughs> things being built out, and then proletarianization of many people, including many formerly middle-class and upper-middle-class people, uh, through the proliferation of tech. It's a very, very traumatizing time. So I also don't think that one, um, you know, it's very easy to take the piss out of woke politics, but I think one can understand why it's there. And I think, um, again, anything that is well-intentioned unless it's universalist can be capitalized upon so i think you know right now obviously we're at a zenith of identity politics and trump's election obviously was a part of the manifestation of that um although you know he's been voted out uh we shall see i don't know I mean, the point being like uh, uh when that's all tied up so it's a, a feature of capitalism and zenith and when alienation and on the and inequality are at their most um, potent. And, you know, right now it's hard to see where we have a moment of respite outside of capitalism. So it might be, it might have been in the past where you closed your door at the end of the day, you clocked off at five o'clock and there was a, you had a meal with your family. And it's hard to, hard to know now when one is side hustling and studying for more degrees that one has to pay for and get into debt for that one is posting about one's wonderful life on social media and needing to accumulate more followers in order to be able to free yourself, in order to, da, da, da. even if you are free and you're a professional poster on Instagram, it's an extreme stressful life. Da, da. It is, it's incredibly difficult. And also, you know, obviously people of a certain age indebted with uh, university debt, won't be able to afford to have children, won't be able to have a house, and people of various different ilks who are completely fucked by the current situation um so my point being as long as that is the political economy um yeah i think woke politics will exist in um or a form of identity politics and who knows i know the film is coming out in 2022 maybe things will be uh, more economically just by then who knows uh, maybe we will start to have favored redistribution and equality over accumulation and um, in which sense people might have their, um, you know, feel more solid in themselves, less ephemeral and standing on sand maybe. Uh, and so maybe the discourse could be more in the level of this symbolic rather than the imaginary, which is um, 
Lucanian distinction. I think that's where we are right now. Uh, final question. What is the relationship between art and politics? Maybe one could <laughs> assess what my answer would be, having listened to this already. I think often what we think of political art isn't political at all. I think um, an artist, I don't think necessarily is the most political, I actually think film ha is, has the potential to be the most emancipatory art form, and I can explain why I think so in a second. But I think Rothko is an example of somebody who is a political artist. And I think a political artist is someone who confronts us with the lacking gaze of desire. And I say that because just within our current system, that is really the thing that can undercut capital, um, that the fantasy object doesn't exist and that desire is always lacking and that we cannot fulfill our lack by attaining the fantasy object. So um, I think film, as I've said before, has an amazing capacity to do this. It can really um, draw us into its form um, through obviously image, story, sound, music, everything is to do with desire, it really gets us hooked in on the level of desire. And then it has the capacity to undercut it in all kinds of interesting and unusual and unexpected ways. Um, I think art that we often think is political is art that's just um, putting forward an oppositional cultural argument. I think this is what woke politics does. It turns um, contradiction into opposition, a la Harry Potter. And um, whilst, and this is, this is a, you know, it's the same thing with like loss and lag under, in philosophy, like um, everybody's in, in, um, stamped with lack and at some stage we will experience loss, but like loss could be differential according to one's class position and the things one has experienced in life. Um, so that's not to say that like a lot of the things that are addressed in the things that have become wokeified aren't important and that there aren't... Um, certain certain uh, chronological or contingent um, inequalities that need to be addressed. But when it's turned into um, an exclusively metaphysical opposition, the idea that if we can overcome this, this opposition, we will metaphysically and transcendentally cure everything, then that's just capitalism. And it's where uh, Stalinism became the right-wing deviation of the left. Also, you know, we see it, I think there's an error in Marx when um, the idea of a utopia is even um, considered at all. I think that, you know, utopia already exists and it's pretty difficult and it's just about enjoying the struggle and that's it. Um, so overcoming the contradiction. So the contradiction is something that one believes one can transcend with fantasy. Um, it doesn't work, but anyway, so oppositional cultural arguments, I think get paraded as political in a certain sense, but they really, the only attachment they have to politics is they prevent politics from being done. So politics being, you know, the governing of people or the way in which the contradiction is managed according to how we structure society and according to your perspective, maybe the best way in which to manage that contradiction. And I think that cultural oppositional arguments are that which cover over the political. So yeah, often politics and art, the reason why we don't like it as well as I think that is really just annoying and actually art is about contradiction. That's like literally what it does. And obviously um, 
maybe, you know, it's less rational, even though I think there is a rationale behind it. Um, film, obviously, is, is maybe more rational than some other art forms in a way, but it's still uh, metaphorical, artistic, it's in this position of the contradiction. And I think, you know, in any, in any, whatever pursuit you do, the contradiction, living into the con contradiction is really where the, the jewel of everything lies. I think the scientific method is about harnessing the contradiction. Um, I think that's really where the best of anything is. Um, but the film really can get us to that, to expose us to the lacking gaze of desire. Uh, gaze being, in a Lacanian sense, where you see yourself implicated as a lacking subject in the thing that you see uh, or want or whatever. Um, so yeah, when we find like distasteful, when we're like, oh, this is so political, I don't want politics in my art. I think what we're seeing is an oppositional cultural argument shoehorned in, transforming it into propaganda. And I think propaganda, yeah, is, is another form of this ideological fantasy where you're covering over contradiction with a certain cultural argu argument. And obviously that's just in the artistic quote unquote form to justify a certain vision of the world. Um, I think that's everything I have to say. It's been very weird just talking alone uh, at a computer screen. Um, I should say also we do have a Patreon. I'm going to try to keep the podcast going. Uh, Adrian needs until February um, to to complete this project he's working on, uh, and I'm very ex excited to see it, to hear it. I hope you are too. But I'll put the link into the link to Patreon into the show notes. Uh, thank you for listening. <laughs> I'm going to get a range of guests on, different kinds of guests, academic guests, non-academic guests. And I'm going to try to push to do it um, once a week or twice or once every two weeks over the next period of time. I think in the Patreon goals, um, there are various goals and, one, and various promises that we make should we achieve those goals. I think we're going towards our first goal, so um, that would be fantastic if we were able to... to help us with with that um thank you for listening i hope it wasn't too boring and um i will talk at you next time bye mm -hmm.